Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Dodge evil villains, defend the earth, and face a fire-breathing dragon oh. at Universal Studios Florida. Enter the lands of superheroes, Ooh. beasts, I love a beast, and magical creatures yeah. at Universal's Islands of Adventure. And live the carefree island life at Universal's Volcano Bay, the first ever water theme park. Don't mind if I do. When you stay at a Universal Orlando hotel, the thrills of three amazing theme parks are outside your door. Plus, that's right, there's a plus. Hotel guests get exclusive benefits that make every day of their stay even more awesome. So wake up where the action is. Plan your Universal Orlando vacation at www.universalorlando.com. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. Literally adults. <laughs> Talking two decades later, adulthood, adults with children, adult content. So if that's the kind of thing you're into, by all means, continue to listen. But if it's not, check out one of the other great podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're circling each other in the great podcast hall, Please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. So it all comes down to this, doesn't it? Whispered Harry. Does the wand in your hand know its last master was disarmed? Because if it does, I am the true master of the Elder Wand. A red gold glow burst suddenly across the enchanted sky above them as an edge of dazzling sun appeared over the sill of the nearest window. The light hit both of their faces at the same time, so that Voldemort's was suddenly a flaming blur. Harry heard the high voice shriek as he too yelled his best hope to the heavens, pointing Draco's wand. And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter, oh. <laughs> proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. It's fabulous. Joining me today, now that he's finished screaming, not my podcast, you bitch. Get your claws off her. <laughs> At Bellatrix, it's Ringer Senior Creative, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Now get back, she's mine. As is Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you've ever pulled the sword of Gryffindor out of the singed remains of the sorting hat, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, rate and review us five points and stars for Binge Mode. Yes. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans. 
and which, like all of our social media communities, is an excellent place to continue engaging with your fellow binge heads between the end of Binge Mode Harry Potter and the return of Binge Mode Game of Thrones. So please stay engaged. We'll be there with you. Also, head over to theringer.com slash shop to check out our Binge Mode merch. Wonderful garb for beheading a snake. <laughs> Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how sacrifice mm. shapes chapters 34 and 35 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And on today's episode... Oh, no! We're completing our Binge Mode Harry Potter book exploration ah! by diving into the final chapter and epilogue of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. I am already a wreck. (laughs) (laughs) Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. (laughs) On details from all seven books and ten films, including the new Fantastic Beasts movie and the wider Potter canon. Taking the entire series into account from the moment Hagrid carries us out of the forest. So cast off your invisibility cloak. Surprise! Get ready to boast. Because it's time to fucking kill Voldemort. Let's do it! Mal, Mm. you don't learn from your mistakes, do you? Clearly not. To help, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallow's chapters 36 and the epilogue. By climbing for the last time aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot, the Hogwarts Express choo-choo! Harry returns from limbo, pretending to be dead, and Voldemort and the Death Eaters march in triumph toward the castle. But the Hogwarts defenders aren't done fighting, even with our hero ostensibly dead, and on the ground at Voldemort's feet. Friends, family, and centaurs arrive to fight. Voldemort's spells don't seem to hold on the crowd. Uh-oh. And Neville plucks the sword of Gryffindor from the sorting hat, and chops off Nagini's head. Zach Cram wants us to give Phoenix song to Nagini. It's very, it's a complicated issue. I'm going to have to lean no on that one. <laughs> <laughs> the battle flows into the Great Hall, where Molly kills Bellatrix. Snake milking song <laughs> for Bella, whom Cram also unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> to honor with a phoenix song. Oh what? my god. And Harry finally reveals himself and engages Voldemort in one last conversation. Phoenix song for Zach Cram's takes, honestly. <sighs> Harry explains how he, not the Dark Lord, is the true master of the Elder Wand, and the two fire spells at each other. Avada Kedavra hits Expelliarmus and rebounds back toward Voldemort who perishes at last and for good. Snake slithers and hisses for our good friend, Tom, thwarted at long last. 19 years later, Harry and Ginny see their kids off to Hogwarts. That includes Albus Severus Potter, their middle child, who dreads being sorted into Slytherin House. Harry reassures him about the sorting process and watches his kids leave for another school year. His scar no longer hurts. All is well. (laughs) Except for my ability to control my emotions. (laughs) All right, here we go. Jason. Yes? I was ready to die to stop you from hurting these podcasts. (laughs) And that gets us to this episode's big idea. 
So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapter 36 and the epilogue of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is love. Chapter 36, The Flaw in the Plan. For the third chapter in a row, Harry wakes, lying down, his face pressed into the ground. The smell of the forest hits him and fills him with the certainty that he is back at the site of so many of his formative experiences, back in his body, back to his life. Harry, the only person known to have survived the dreaded Avada Kedavra curse, has now done so twice, this time gaining the singular knowledge of what awaits beyond and, viscerally, of what it feels like to get hit with a killing curse. And spoiler, folks, it feels real bad. It's not what you want. Much better than being dead, however. Voldemort's curse hit Harry with tremendous force. His whole body aches from receiving such a surge of deadly magic and from hitting the ground as he fell. Even his glasses restored to him upon his departure from limbo or cutting into his face as he lays pressed into the dirt. And the spot where the curse made contact, quote, felt like the bruise of an ironclad punch. Harry, though, remains still and silent, mouth agape, arm bent awkwardly, so as not to arouse the Dark Lord's suspicion. Guided, as always, by his keen instinct, he knows that he must pretend to be dead, must soak up every ounce of observational intelligence that he can, while those around him believe him to be a corpse. And there's a lot to soak up, because it quickly becomes clear that though Harry appears to be dead, something about Harry's murder did not go as Voldemort expected. And what else is new, folks? (laughs) (laughs) What else is new at this point? (laughs) Quote, He had expected to hear cheers of triumph and jubilation at his death, but instead, hurried footsteps, whispers, and solicitous murmurs filled the air. Harry's death has been the Dark Lord's central preoccupation since Sybil Trelawney first issued her prophecy at the Hogshead. So where's the celebration? Mm -hmm. Where are the victory cries? Harry hears, instead of these, Bellatrix's voice speaking, quote, as if to a lover. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. My lord, Bellatrix moans. My lord. Bella, of course, is speaking to a lover, as we learn in Cursed Child. Shouts to the Delphi heads out there. But while Bellatrix's infatuation with the Dark Lord is all-consuming, whatever binds Voldy to Bella, as with everything else in the Dark Lord's life, is too evil and twisted to ever be called love. You will hear many of his Death Eaters claiming that they are in his confidence, Dumbledore told Harry and Prince, that they alone are close to him, even understand him. They are deluded. We're about to see what that delusion will cost and what Harry's counterpower, love, will pay. Harry, hearing all of this, knows it's too risky to open his eyes for a look. Everything is on the line. He can't let curiosity overcome sense. But he taps into his other senses, allowing them to guide him, lead him, reveal the truth of the moment to him. And it speaks to a certain maturity and newfound caution that Harry didn't previously possess. It feels as though all of the lessons that Harry has absorbed are synthesizing here. What he learned from watching Dumbledore run his hands along the walls of the cave, using every one of his senses, every crackling ember of awareness within him, to detect the traces of magic around him. What he learned, too, from listening to his own body when he emerged from Snape's memories and found himself on the floor of the headmaster's office, attuned to the beating of his heart and the pace of his breathing and the firing synapses of his mind. He can feel his wand and the invisibility cloak stuffed in his robes where he left them. He hears Bella's frantic voice again and Voldemort replying, that will do. (laughs) Clearly, there's a reason that Voldemort's minions are fussing over him, and now Harry can't resist the urge any longer, taking extreme care 
Not to give up the ruse, he opens his eyes the slightest of bits and sees Voldemort getting to his feet, his Death Eaters backing away from him with uncertainty, Bella remaining by his side. Harry closes his eyes as quickly as he opened them, processing what he's seen. If Voldemort's getting up, it means that he also found himself on the ground, his Death Eaters gathering around him in panic. Something Harry deduces happened when Voldemort's curse hit Harry. Both of them appear to have lost consciousness. Both of them seem to have stirred at the same moment, though in Harry's case, avoiding detection. What had Voldemort experienced? Had he potentially returned from some point halfway between life and death as well? Is he waking with newfound clarity and purpose as Harry is? Or does he remain as ever blind to the path to redemption? Before Harry can contemplate this for long, he hears Bellatrix attempt to help up her fuck buddy. But Voldemort, (laughs) who does not deal with such displays of weakness, refuses. Quote, I do not require assistance, he says, voicing not only his determined self-reliance in this moment, but offering yet another inadvertent reminder of how diametrically opposed he and Harry are in almost every respect. (laughs) Harry's strength comes from fighting for his friends. He was able to walk through the Dementors and enter this forest clearing in the first place because his parents, Sirius and Lupin, loved him so fiercely that it forged a shield around him. Harry let his loved ones guide him into death's embrace. Voldemort won't even let someone help him stand up. He does need help with one thing, though. The boy. Is he dead? Actually, Voldy, the only thing dead around here is the total silence which greets the question. Voldemort largely rules through fear and the promise of power. None of his marked and supposedly loyal followers wishes to invite their lord's displeasure by having to deliver the potentially terrible news that actually, no, he's still alive. And though none of them have the perspective that Harry does after returning from King's Cross, they know as practitioners of the Avada Kedavra curse themselves and as magical beings intimately acquainted with the tangled history between Harry and Voldemort, that what just transpired on Voldemort's side of the clearing alone is not common. God knows what awaits them where Harry rests. Harry listens in paralyzing fear, awaiting someone's approach, wondering how long he can fend off discovery. From the book, he was terrified a finger or an eyelid might twitch. We must deduce as well that the Death Eaters aren't the only ones who are afraid. Why is it Voldemort going over there to check himself? Uh Because the sorcerer who's been undone by his hubris time and time again is about to be again, and this time fatally, clearly lacks the courage to see if the 17-year-old boy before him still has a pulse, to see if the unknown, to him anyway, magic that landed him on the ground, robbed him yet again of his kill, to see if the great ghost and mockery of his life still stirs. Recall what Dumbledore told Harry in the cave. There's nothing to be feared from a body, Harry, any more than there is anything to be feared from the darkness. Lord Voldemort, who of course secretly fears both, disagrees, but once again, He reveals his own lack of wisdom. It is the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness, nothing more. There is so much that Voldemort does not know, and thus so much that he, unlike Harry and Dumbledore and others who work toward enlightenment, has reason to fear. And so Voldemort chooses a follower to go forward on his behalf and confirm that Harry Potter is officially, finally, truly the boy who died. And as ever, his order is a blight and a burden, not a boon. Quote, you said Voldemort, and there was a bang and a small shriek of pain. Examine him. Tell me whether he is dead. Harry has no idea who's about to approach him, which of Voldemort's loyalists is about to press cold fingers against his skin in search of a pulse. Quote, he could only lie there with his heart thumping traitorously and wait to be examined. 
but at the same time noting small comfort though it was that Voldemort was wary of approaching him, mm-hmm. that Voldemort suspected that all had not gone to plan. It turns out that Voldemort has tasked Narcissa Malfoy with acting as his champion here, and what a costly choice that will prove to be. In the flaw in the plan, the Dark Lord will reap the seeds that he sowed with his arrogance, his bigotry, his closed-mindedness, and his hate. Asking Narcissa to perform this task, which fills him with such unmistakable fear, but which he does not let lead him to pause for even an instant to consider what emotion or opportunity it might unearth in someone else, is one of the myriad examples of how his hubris helped bring about his reckoning. Voldemort has treated the Malfoys with sadistic disdain for years. From the moment he returned in the graveyard, he made it clear that Lucius would have to work his way back into his favor. And just last year, after Lucius failed to procure the prophecy of the Department of Mysteries, Voldemort sought to punish Lucius and his family by tasking Draco with attempting to assassinate Albus Dumbledore, a near-certain suicide mission. A Snape all but confirmed to Narcissa when she went to him for help in Spinner's End. Now, the Malfoys aren't innocent by any means. Their involvement with Voldemort and the damage that they've helped unleash both directly and indirectly is on their heads. Lucius and Narcissa do, however, love their son. The Dark Lord's views on that particular emotion are well-established. He views love and attachment as a weakness, not a strength. He's mocked Lucius' concern for his son directly to his face. Mere chapters ago in The Elder One, when Lucius transparently tried to steer Voldemort to call off the battle so that Harry would not die by any hand but his own, hoping that in so doing he would carve a path back to the castle and to his child, Voldemort said in the pitiless fashion that has defined his reign, quote, If your son is dead, Lucius, it is not my fault. Moments later, he added, do not pretend, Lucius. You wish the battle to cease so that you can discover what has happened to your son. As though that were somehow shameful and weak rather than the most relatably human tendency that Lucius Malfoy had ever (laughs) exhibited. Dumbledore's line to Harry in Prince about tyrants fearing those they oppress, knowing that one day one of their victims is bound to rise up and strike back, was meant to apply to Voldemort's enemies. But one of the greatest indictments of his reign is that it fits his followers, too. He is so cruel, so cold and unfeeling, that he makes it so that those who defy him are not the only threats. So, too, are those who've sworn their allegiance to him. And not, crucially, because they've renounced their ways or his, but because they know that they cannot turn to him in their pain and their sorrow and expect to find sympathy or warmth or aid. They know they will find only ridicule and disdain. Voldemort's treatment of the Malfoys does not honor their love of their son. It acknowledges it only in an effort to punish it. And his utterly warped misunderstanding of the nature and power of love leaves him open to what happens next. Harry feels soft hands touch his face, lift an eyelid, slip under his shirt. He can feel the hair against his face as Narcissa searches for signs of life. He knows that those hands cannot possibly miss the hammering of his heart. And indeed, they do not. Is Draco alive? She whispers. Is he in the castle? And Harry realizes here that it's Narcissa talking, asking in a barely audible whisper about her son, seeing and seizing an opportunity to save him, risking everything in order to find her family, casting logic and the voices in her head aside in order to listen fully to the clarity in her heart. Her hair covers Harry's face so that he can reply, and he does so, not because he trusts this person, 
who has never treated him or his friends with anything but naked animosity and loathing, but because he trusts, maybe more than anything in the world, a mother's love for her son. He trusts in the fact that as wholly, fundamentally different as Harry and Lily are from Draco and Narcissa, they're united in flesh, blood, and bone-deep desire to keep each other safe. Yes, Harry whispers back, knowing that Narcissa could take this proof of life and use it to end him, but knowing also that her disdain for Harry and what he represents is a flickering, dying shadow in the raging light of her love for her son. He feels her hand contract against his chest. He hears her shout to the Dark Lord and his assembled. He is dead. Finally, the Death Eaters can celebrate, and they do so with reckless abandon. Harry remains still as he processes what's transpired from the book. Narcissa knew that the only way she could be permitted to enter Hogwarts and find her son was as part of the conquering army. She no longer cared whether Voldemort won. After all, what good would it do to see Voldemort gain the whole world if she lost her only son in the process? But Tom Riddle does not think of what he's robbing others of, only what he stands to gain. Here the Dark Lord can't wait to preen and boast and luxuriate in his victory. You see? Screeched Voldemort over the tumult. Harry Potter is dead by my hand, and no man alive can threaten me now. Watch! Crucio! His elation is yet another mask, but this one porous, betraying the fear and uncertainty long suppressed that Harry and his unknowable edge have stirred in him. But Harry knows his good friend Tom better than any other living soul does, and he knew that Voldemort would feel compelled to express his domination over his fallen foe by humiliating Harry's body. Harry's thrown into the air by the curse, bracing to try to keep his body limp as the agony of the unforgivable curse courses through him. But, curiously, he feels no pain from the torture spell, a strong early indication in this chapter that the Elder One will not work properly against his master. Harry concentrates on playing dead as Voldemort toys with him, making a mockery of his body, casting him about so his glasses fly off his face and his wand moves under his robes as the Death Eaters exult. It's not enough for Voldemort to believe that he is one. He has to show himself to be supreme. He has to belittle and mortify his enemy in order to make himself feel superior. Now, said Voldemort, we go to the castle and show them what has become of their hero. Who shall drag the body? No, wait. And there was a fresh outbreak of laughter. After a few moments, Harry felt the ground trembling beneath him. You carry him. He will be nice and visible in your arms, will he not? Pick up your little friend. Voldemort, seeking to maximize the humiliation and subjugation of his foes, is forcing Hagrid to pick up what Hagrid thinks is Harry's corpse and carry the unthinkable sight into the grounds, filled with those who love and championed him. Recall how Forensic described the assault on the unicorns in Sorcerer's Stone, which, as we learned at the end of the book, Voldemort forced Quirrell to do. Quote, It is a monstrous thing, the centaur said, adding, Only one who has nothing to lose and everything to gain would commit such a crime. That's what this feels like. Preying upon Hagrid's affection and his grief, the love for Harry that bounds in his heart, is monstrous. Using Hagrid and that love as a prop in order to display Harry like a pelt claimed on a hunt is one more sickening insight into how Voldemort views human connection. Not just as something to dismiss, but as something to actively weaponize and punish. Mm -hmm. The gentle half-giant who carried the infant Harry swaddled in blankets from the wreckage of Godric's Hollow to Privet Drive and the security of his mother's blood must now bear what he thinks is Harry's body. It is a perversely cruel order, all too emblematic of Voldemort's character, which has grown somehow even more grotesque in his seeming victory. 
Voldemort orders one of his followers to put Harry's glasses back on his face so that he's recognizable, so that there can be no mistaking that Voldemort has turned the boy so many believed had been his downfall and would be again into a puppet on strings. Convenient! Because Harry's going to need those glasses to see. (laughs) Recall what Snape said to Harry in Order of the Phoenix during occlumency lessons. Quote, You are not trying. You are making no effort. You are allowing me access to memories you fear handing me weapons. Throughout this sequence, Voldemort is the one handing Harry weapons. Voldemort is the one acting recklessly, letting his desire obscure the threats. Harry feels a stranger roughly shove his glasses back onto his face, quote, but the enormous hands that lifted him into the air were exceedingly gentle. He could feel Hagrid's arms trembling with the force of his heaving sobs. Great tears splashed down upon him. As Hagrid cradled Harry in his arms, and Harry did not dare by movement or word to intimate to Hagrid that all was not yet lost. This is devastating. We have spoken often of what Hagrid represents for Harry. Entry into the wizarding world, steady reliability, a brother, father, friend, teacher hybrid without equal. But here, we must think of what Harry means to Hagrid. It's hard not to recall both the sight of Hagrid carrying Dumbledore's body down the aisle last year at Dumbledore's funeral toward the white slab of marble that would become his tomb, and the memory of Hagrid nestling the infant Harry against him like a loaf of bread as he shepherded him to safety. Hagrid has also lost so much over his life, his mother, his father, his standing as a Hogwarts student, his reputation among many of his fellow wizards, losing Dumbledore and now Harry, two of the people who gave him the love and acceptance and familial embrace that his own flesh and blood were not always able to, hurts far more than any spell of Voldemort's ever could. There's no use in resisting, because resistance stems from hope. And a world without Dumbledore or Harry does not feel like a world where hope can spring into being, let alone bloom and thrive. Voldemort orders Hagrid on, and as Harry lays still in Hagrid's arms, the branches beat against him as they move, and the victorious cries of Voldemort's foe-triumphant army fill the air as the procession winds its way through the Forbidden Forest toward the castle. Quote, Nobody looked to see whether a pulse beat in the exposed neck of Harry Potter. As the party moves closer to the grounds, it encounters the centaurs. Save for Forenza, who even now lies with the other wounded in the Great Hall, the proud creatures, as they always pledged they would, stood aside as the Battle of Hogwarts raged. They emerged last year to pay their respects at Dumbledore's funeral, and though their ultimate actions on this night will change, so far they have done nothing as the castle crumbled and those with the courage to confront evil, many of them children, fell. Always the innocent are the first victims, said the centaur Ronan to Hagrid years ago during Harry's first year at Hogwarts and first trip into the forest. That night, Ronan and Bane both remarked on the unusual brightness of the planet Mars, a harbinger of war, and when Bane saw Ferenz guiding Harry to safety, he issued a frantic warning. We are sworn not to set ourselves against the heavens. Have we not read what is to come in the movements of the planets? Bane, Ronan, and many of their kind considered Harry's fate and wizarding kind's fate sealed, never paying proper consideration or credit to that great disruptor. Choice. To be fair to the centaurs, there are many reasonable justifications for their desire to separate themselves from the wizards' affairs. Wizards, as we have seen and discussed, have historically treated other magical races with either patronizing disdain or outright bigotry. The centaurs wanted to protect their land, their home, their way of life. 
But what is a way of life for one type of being if it comes at the expense of life for another? The centaur's reasons, however high-minded and just and rational-seeming when the war was a distant thing and humans' toxic touch a very real and present threat, now appear in the throes of war and when weighed against Harry's willing sacrifice and the dead and wounded lining the floor of the Great Hall and the untold muggle victims whose names we will never know as something quite different, cowardice. Bane! Hagrid shouts so loudly and suddenly that Harry almost fails to keep his eyes closed tight. Happy now, are you? That you didn't fight, you cowardly bunch of nags? Are you happy Harry Potter's dead? The group continues on to the edge of the forest and then halts. Harry can sense the Dementor's cold and hear their signature rasp, but their dire chill can no longer reach him. His Patronus lives inside him now, alight with love and purpose, proud and strong and surging. Quote, the fact of his own survival burned inside of him, a talisman against them, as though his father's stag kept guardian in his heart. I love that line so much. Harry next feels a body move past him, and then hears Voldemort speak, again addressing Hogwarts's defenders, his voice magically amplified so that it booms and slithers over the ground, a snake on the air, speaking the words that he's desperately wanted to say for years. Quote, Harry Potter is dead. He was killed as he ran away, trying to save himself while you lay down your lives for him. We bring you his body as proof that your hero is gone. Real talk, fuck this guy. That's my take on Voldemort. (laughs) The scale of Voldemort's error would be incalculable if we weren't mere pages away from actually being able to measure it. His continuing inability to appreciate the fierce dedication of his enemies would almost be comical if it weren't so deeply tragic. The same greed that once led him to take Harry's blood into his own body leads him now to gloat so gracelessly. It does not occur to him to comfort the masses who now think they're hearing about their fallen leader. Remember what Scrimgeour said to Harry when he attempted to court him in Half-Blood Prince. Quote, you are a symbol of hope for many, Harry. Scrimgeour's manner was often tactless, his methods at times shameless, but his core point was not wrong. Harry gave people hope, whether or not they knew him. Those who didn't saw a boy who had done the impossible and then done it again and again, and gained from that accomplishment the belief that no matter how fully the dark pressed upon them, they could find a way to prevail. As Harry sat at Dumbledore's funeral, he thought back on one of the many lessons the headmaster had taught him. Quote, It was important, Dumbledore said, to fight and fight again and keep fighting. For only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. Harry helped others learn that, internalize it, come to truly believe it. He made them feel not only that someone else was fighting, but made them want to fight too. And those who did know Harry, well, they saw and felt All of that plus more, including an irrepressible drive to ask, as Dumbledore once said to Newt, is the thing right? Voldemort's grave dance, his words, lend such little credence to the power of that admiration and attachment that it only serves to draw forth those emotions in his audience, reminding them of what and who they value and why. What's more, not one of the Hogwarts defenders believes the lie that Harry died while fleeing. Harry was never fearless, but his boundless courage let him run toward danger, never from it. Voldemort, of course, knows this. It's why he was so sure that Harry would surrender himself on this night. Remember what he said in The Elder Wand? I know his weakness, you see, his one great flaw. 
He will hate watching the others struck down around him, knowing that it is for him that it happens. He will want to stop it at any cost. He will come. It is, of course, not his weakness. It is his strength. Harry has wanted always to keep others safe. Some of his truest torment has come in the moments where his decisions, his actions, the very fact of his being, led others to harm. Remember the thought that tore away inside of him as he and Dumbledore streaked back to the castle and Half-Blood Prince flying to the unknown horror awaiting them below the dark mark? Quote, would he be responsible again for the death of a friend? Harry just walked into the forest fully intending to die, to sacrifice himself so that others might live. It might sound foolishly naive to speak of the nerve of tyrants who manipulate and oppress and corrupt as second nature, but there is something about the sheer audacity, the gall of Voldemort attempting to turn Harry's incomparable sacrifice into a claim of cowardice that reveals his evil anew. Voldemort tells the mourning masses that he has won the battle, reminds them they've lost half of their fighters and are now outnumbered, and then makes a show of offering the survivors mercy on the condition that they submit to him in his new regime. There must be no more war, he says, as if he was not the one who has started the war now twice. Anyone who continues to resist man, woman, or child will be slaughtered, as will every member of their family. Here again, we see how Voldemort, like every petty tyrant, seeks to use love as a cudgel, threatening the defender's innocent families, which he knows they'll want to protect with death. Channeling his favorite Westerosi leaders, he demands that they bend the knee. (laughs) Come out of the castle now, kneel before me, and you shall be spared. Your parents and children, your brothers and sisters will live and be forgiven, and you will join me in the new world we shall build together. Utter silence greets his words. Voldemort urges Hagrid forward with a command, and as they move, Harry chances another glance. He sees the Dark Lord in front of them, leading the group, with Nagini, now truly the final Horcrux, loosed from her protective bubble and draped across his shoulders, out in the open, exposed. More hubris here from Voldemort, who easily could have just waited until he made another Horcrux to uncase Nagini, just to be safe. I think about this all the time. Come on, man. Yeah. It's like, like a little patience, my this guy. This is like a guy who never backs up his documents. <laughs> Well, he backed him up. He backed him up. And then but when you, all your backups. You lost get, all the thumb drives and didn't boot up the cloud. Yeah, come on. It's like <laughs> after you lose all your drives, back it up one more time. But he's not thinking of precautions. He's thinking only of making the strongest show possible of Harry's death and his own victory. Harry, seeing this, briefly considers drawing his wand and taking a shot here and now. Uh But he knows that even reaching for his wand is an impossibility with the Death Eaters on every side of him. And so he shuts his eyes tight again and uses all his powers of concentration to try to detect signs of life from within the castle as they draw nearer. Above him, Hagrid sobs his name. Harry, oh, Harry, Harry. And then Harry hears Voldemort command them to stop. Harry can see the glow of the entrance hall, even though his eyes are closed, and he senses the Death Eaters moving to either side of their master, a conquering army, ready to take stock of the vanquished. Harry knows that a terrible moment is coming when, quote, the people for whom he had tried to die would see him lying apparently dead in Hagrid's arms. And sure enough, a dreadful cry pierces the air, quote, no. (sighs) This kills me. The scream was the more terrible because he had never expected or dreamed that Professor McGonagall could make such a sound. This is such a perfectly agonizing choice by J.K. Rowling. Who better than McGonagall? Fiercely loyal, but also so regularly composed to show us how the sight of Harry's seemingly dead body would shatter something 
and those who gazed upon it. Harry hears a woman laughing in response to McGonagall's agonized wail and knows that it's Bellatrix exulting like her lord and baby daddy in others' pain. Harry steals another rapid, careful glance as the castle's defenders file out to face their enemies and see for themselves whether the Dark Lord's boast is true. And it appears to be so. Other cries follow McGonagall's, their voices unmistakable to Harry. Quote, no, no. Harry, Harry. Ron's, Hermione's, and Ginny's voices were worse than McGonagall's. Harry wanted nothing more than to call back, yet he made himself lie silent. (sighs) Two chapters ago, when Harry walked past the Great Hall on his way to the forest, he thought to himself, quote, he felt he would have given all the time remaining to him for just one last look at them. But then would he ever have the strength to stop looking? It was better like this. He didn't want that pain, but neither did he want it for Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Luna, and the rest. But he hears them now. He feels the full force of their anguish. Letting them suffer through this is his latest test, but one he knows he must endure, and one he knows ultimately that they will all be able to endure, that their love for Harry and belief in their shared cause will carry them through it. Harry can force himself to remain silent because as terrible as it is to know that his best friends and his love are grieving— He also knows that they will not shrink away from the task. They will not melt into their despair. He knows that their hearts will not anchor them, but will, as Harry's own heart has so many times, propel them forward. And sure enough, from the book, their cries acted like a trigger. Their crowd of survivors took up the cause, screaming and yelling abuse at the Death Eaters until, Silence! cried Voldemort. The Dark Lord will not have his moment, his victory, sullied by protestations, or indeed, any voice but his own. He casts a spell, and with a bang and bright light, a hush falls over the crowd. It is over! Voldemort shouts, sounding not like a leader, but like a needy child, desperate to make sure everyone understands that he has won. Set him down, Hagrid, at my feet, where he belongs. During his latest rise, after returning to his body, the Dark Lord was careful, as he worked to build his strength and eliminate his most dangerous enemies, to keep his brutal intentions and even his very existence hidden behind a veil of puppets and plausible deniability— But with each incremental increase in his power, he never failed to show us who he is and what his reign portends. Think of the magic as might statue that our friends observed in the ministry atrium after the fall of the government and the murder of Scrimgeour. Quote, this vast sculpture of a witch and a wizard sitting on ornately carved thrones, looking down at the ministry workers toppling out of fireplaces below them. When Harry gets a closer look, he realizes, quote, that what he had thought were decoratively carved thrones were actually mounds of carved humans, hundreds and hundreds of naked bodies, men, women, and children. At the time, Hermione described it to him and us as, quote, muggles in their rightful place. But the magic is might statue is in truth incomplete. The sculpture in Voldemort's mind, the sculpture that truly represents the worldview that he has endeavored all these years to turn into reality, would show him standing above all wizards, muggles, and everyone. Quote, as Voldemort rants, Harry feels Hagrid lower him to the ground. You see, Voldemort shouts, and Harry can feel him pacing back and forth in his fury that the assembled he's addressing still believe in Harry, still care for him, still won't acknowledge that the red-eyed monster before them is superior. Harry Potter is dead. Do you understand now? Deluded ones? He was nothing ever but a boy who relied on others to sacrifice themselves for him. But Voldemort is the one who doesn't understand. Voldemort is the deluded one, deluded in actually thinking that this is true, and deluded in thinking that anyone listening to him from across the way 
will believe him. And that delusion is all the more astonishing in light of the life-altering history that should have cast it off with the force of a shield charm. Quote, you see, I think, how foolish it was to suppose that this boy could ever have been stronger than me, Voldemort told his Death Eaters in the Hangleton graveyard after returning to his body and preparing to duel Harry, not purely to win, but to play with his food to torment his foe, to make himself feel big by making someone else feel small. He never changes. He never learns from his mistakes. But his arrogance and his myopia only serve to make the communal spirit and belief around him surge with more force. He beat you, yelled Ron. (laughs) And the charm broke, and the defenders of Hogwarts were shouting and screaming again. Incredible moment. Voldemort silences them again with magic and repeats anew his lie that Harry died while sneaking away and trying to save himself at the expense of those he left behind. But he's shouting into the void, and the void is shouting back. Consider what the contrast on display here shows us. Voldemort has to resort to spell work and magical control to say his piece, to try to own the air. Ron and his fellows need only to shout what's in their hearts. That's their magic. That's their spell work. That's stronger than anything that could come out of their wands. What a pitch-perfect encapsulation of the contrast between Voldemort and Harry, between hate and love, now trickling down from Harry to all those whom his love has touched and whose love has touched him in turn. Recall when Neville walked the trio along the passage from the hogshead to the Room of Requirement, what Neville said to Harry. It helps when people stand up to them. It gives everyone hope. I used to notice that when you did it, Harry. Neville's example gave his fellow students faith throughout the year. And here, Ron's courage is a tonic for those around him. Voldemort falls silent as someone breaks free of the crowd and charges. After disarming the challenger and casting aside the wand, Voldemort laughs because he does not understand what's fueling the charge. It is not something to take lightly, as he'll learn Uh to his sorrow momentarily. And who is this? He said in his soft snake's hiss. Who has volunteered to demonstrate what happens to those who continue to fight when the battle is lost? Bellatrix, also laughing with sickening relish, says that it's Neville Longbottom, quote, the boy who has been giving the Caros so much trouble, the son of the Aurors, remember? This is a pretty remarkable moment. Neville has proven such a disruptive force at Hogwarts this year that word of his efforts has reached Voldemort's ear. But just as she did at the Ministry in Order, Bellatrix has severely miscalculated the impact that mentioning Neville's parents will have. Why, I have had the pleasure of meeting your parents, boy, she said of Frank and Alice, who she helped torture into madness. I know you had! Neville shouted at the time, not shrinking in terror or despair, but fighting so hard against the hold of his then-captor that the Death Eater trying to restrain him begged a comrade to stun him. Here as well, Neville does not break. Standing on the battleground for Harry's bravery, (laughs) hearing mention of his parents, hearing this time a recollection of Neville's own bravery too, he stands tall and proud, love and purpose in his heart, hope far from extinguished. Harry left him a task, and even if he hadn't, the words that he spoke to Harry earlier are surely pounding in his mind. He knows that he can do for others what Harry so often did for him. He can rise. He can help them find their courage. Voldemort does not strike him down, at least not yet. Miscalculating even more astonishingly, he says, You show spirit and bravery, and you come of noble stock. You will make a very valuable Death Eater. We need your kind, Neville Longbottom. It's not. I gotta tell you, it's not gonna happen. Neville's like, I deleted the Sacred 28 app from my phone long ago. (laughs) Think back 
to Sorcerer's Stone, when Quirrell, explaining how he had fallen into Voldemort's grasp, said to Harry, There is no good and evil. There is only power, and those too weak to seek it. Voldemort sincerely believes that this is true and views those who think otherwise not as different or even just wrong, but as weak, tragically led astray by emotion over the kind of practicality that would allow them to rise. When Dumbledore and Voldemort battled at the Ministry of Magic, Dumbledore said, in response to Tom Riddle's claim that there's nothing worse than death, quote, your failure to understand that there are things much worse than death has always been your greatest weakness. For Voldemort, conquering death and attaining power are one and the same, and emotion is the enemy of both. It's about to be the enemy of him again as well. Quote, I'll join you when hell freezes over, Neville shouts in reply to this naked invitation to forsake his friends and himself and join the dark side. Dumbledore's army, he shouts. (laughs) Quote, and there was an answering cheer from the crowd whom Voldemort's silencing charm seemed unable to hold. This is an iconic flex from our guy Neville Longbottom. Voldemort in his moment of triumph just getting dunked on by children. (laughs) Neville is not only speaking truth to power, but he is telling that power that it's not as powerful as it thinks. Neville, like Harry, like Dumbledore, knows where real power resides. In Varys' famed shadow on the wall, right? In the amplified shape of those who fight for love. Quote, very well, said Voldemort. And Harry heard more danger in the silkiness of his voice than in the most powerful curse. Voldemort whips his wand and summons from the school the sorting hat, which flies into his waiting hands. He announces that there will be no more sorting, no more houses. Every student from here on will be in Slytherin. Some real cursed child alt timeline for Voldemort and Valor vibes here, by the way. He then uses the bodybind curse on Neville and forces the sorting hat upon his head. What's about to transpire here is terrifying to witness. It also fills us with a Patronus-like surge of hope. Neville's first documented act of immense bravery in the series came when he stood up to Harry, Ron, and Hermione as they set out for Fluffy's trap door in Sorcerer's Stone, and Hermione immobilized him with Petrificus Totalis. It is no accident on J.K. Rowling's part to put Neville under that same spell's effect here, asking us to recall that moment and to think about how far Neville has traveled on the path of self-assurance and courage so that when Voldemort next acts, we can hold on to that ember of faith and not lose ourselves in our fear. Voldemort failing to convert Neville has decided to make an example of him. Neville here is now going to demonstrate what happens to anyone foolish enough to continue to oppose me, he says, and he lights the sorting hat resting on Neville Longbottom's brave head alight. Neville, frozen, cannot, cannot pull it off. As screams split the air and flames surround Neville, Harry decides to reveal himself at last. He cannot watch Neville die like this. From the book, and then many things happened at the same moment. War cries rise from the distance as a new mob swarms in. Grop emerges suddenly shouting for his brother, and Voldemort's giants answer his call. (laughs) The centaur, so recently challenged by Hagrid for an isolationist policy that equated to cowardly inaction, come surging out of the forest, loosing their arrows at the Death Eaters. Harry, with the spry reflexes of a world-class seeker, pulls the invisibility cloak from inside his robes and pulls it over himself in one sweeping motion and rises. Neville moves as well, breaking free of the body-bind curse upon him 
throwing off the sorting hat and pulling from it a, quote, something silver with a glittering rubied handle. In many lesser fantasy stories, this would be a deus ex machina, god from the machine, a solution to a problem invented from thin air. In Rowling's creation, we've been primed for literal years for this moment. Quote, this is what Dumbledore sends his defender. Harry's good friend Tom mocked in the Chamber of Secrets when Fox dropped the frayed cap at Harry's feet. A songbird in an old hat. Do you feel brave, Harry Potter? Do you feel safe now? (laughs) He felt a good deal safer when he pulled the hat onto his head, begged for help, and from its depths drew the sword of Gryffindor that he then used to slay the basilisk. In the process, creating a horcrux slaying weapon imbibed with the venom, that's one of the only true known substances for destroying the casings for slivers of soul. Quote, only a true Gryffindor could have pulled that out of the hat, Dumbledore told Harry in the aftermath of that victory. And when Scrimger told Harry that the sword bequeathed to him in Dumbledore's will was not Dumbledore's to give, Hermione said that it had chosen Harry. At the time, Scrimger's reply felt like a grating indictment of Harry's worth and unique standing. Quote, according to reliable historical sources, the sword may present itself to any worthy Gryffindor. Now those words are the nectar of life itself. Neville, who used to believe that he didn't belong in Gryffindor House because he was not brave, just challenged Voldemort directly, survived one of the Dark Lord's attacks, and drew from Gryffindor's own hat, Gryffindor's sword. Incredible. The affirmation (laughs) of his standing as a true Gryffindor is also yet another link between Neville and Harry. Yes. Between the almost chosen one and the actually chosen one. And here, sword in hand, the almost, reinforces yet again that prophecies don't determine our fates. We do. Harry's last request playing through his mind, Neville slashes the sword through the air toward the precise final casing of soul that Voldemort, in his unconscionable arrogance, left unprotected on his march into literal enemy territory. Amazing stuff from Voldemort once again. Here is my neck. Let me expose it for you. Here. Tough luck. Here's the sword. Quote, the slash of the silver blade could not be heard over the roar of the oncoming crowd or the sounds of the clashing giants or the stampeding centaurs. And yet it seemed to drive every eye. With a single stroke, Neville sliced off the great snake's head, which spun high into the air, gleaming in the light flooding from the entrance hall. And Voldemort's mouth was open in a scream of fury that nobody could hear. And the snake's body thudded to the ground at his feet. Whoops! Incredible imagery there. Neville honored his pledge to Harry, showing everyone around him that it's never too late to fight. And he did his part as the almost chosen one to sever one of Voldemort's links to immortality. Just incredible. Harry, now invisible beneath his cloak, casts a shield charm between Neville and Voldemort, but the prospect of remaining an invisible operative doesn't seem like it's going to last long. Harry, Harry, where's Harry? Hagrid shouts. And it turns out that even amid all-out war at Hogwarts, no safer place, and the sudden summoning of a magical sword and the slaying of Voldemort's snake, people will still notice if a supposed corpse suddenly goes missing. As chaos reigns, Harry sees Thestrals and Buckbeak, Witherwings, in case anyone's listening, attacking Voldemort's giants from above as Grop attacks them from the ground. With the creatures engaged in frantic battle, wizards on both sides retreat into the castle for fear of being stomped or shredded by talons. Harry fires curse after curse from under his cloak, removing as many Death Eaters from the fray as he can. Quote, their bodies were trampled by the retreating crowd. My goodness. He lets the cresting wave of the crowd carry him, still hidden into the entrance hall, where he spots Voldemort shooting off spells and shouting battle commands to his soldiers, who never expected to find themselves back in this position. 
who never took their foes seriously enough to believe that another challenge like this could come after Harry had fallen, or at least appeared to. Harry fires off shield charm after shield charm, again providing a perfect microcosm of the contrast between him and Voldemort. Harry, who we associate with defensive shield-centric magic, like Expelliarmus, his one true love, or Patronus's, or the Marauder's Map, etc., 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 is prioritizing protecting those he loves over wounding those he seeks to beat. Voldemort has not given one passing thought to protecting those who stand beside him, other than to order them to fight for him and die for him if they must. As Seamus... <laughs> and Hannah and others shielded by Harry's charms enter the hall, so too do others who are pouring up the front steps. Charlie Weasley and Horace Slughorn in his emerald pajamas. Oh my. They have come, like Sansa with the Knights of the Vale, to reinforce their allies, leading, quote, what looked like the families and friends of every Hogwarts student who had remained to fight, along with the shopkeepers and homeowners of Hogsmeade. The moment that Dumbledore warned everyone about has come. And in this urgent hour, the masses have chosen not what is easy, but what is right. They have chosen to rise as one and fight for goodness and kindness and love. The centaurs charge into the hall as well, Bane, Ronan, and Megorian. Everyone is united against Voldemort at last. It is a tragedy that it took this long, that the children of the wizarding world had to lead and suffer so severely because the system and the adults failed them. But it's also an undeniable testament to Harry's impact and the aspirational nature of his example. The wizarding world wants to honor his life and his sacrifice. They want to help brighten the light that he restored. Next, the door to the kitchens burst open, and the house elves of Hogwarts stream into the fight, led by none other than Creature, who, with the locket that Harry gave him swinging proudly from his neck, booms out for all to hear, Fight! Fight! Fight for my master, defender of house elves. Fight the Dark Lord in the name of brave Regulus fight. What a wonderful moment. Redemption for Creature who has chosen of his own volition and free will to fight for Harry, and yet one more fully emblematic contrast between Harry and Tom Riddle. Harry formed a true life-altering and saving friendship with Dobby, and in time came to empathize with all that Creature had suffered and offer him enough compassion and kindness to build a bridge toward, if not love, at least a shared understanding. Voldemort sent Creature to die in the cave, and he and his minions never considered that a house elf's magic could penetrate the dungeons of Malfoy Manor. Of house elves and children's tales of love, loyalty, and innocence, Voldemort knows and understands nothing. Nothing, Dumbledore said to Harry in King's Cross. And once again, that dismissive prejudice has proven to be his undoing, while Harry's open-hearted nature has proved to be his boon. Creature is what he has been made by wizards, Dumbledore told Harry in order. And here we see that the only thing more powerful than Voldemort's destructive bigotry is Harry's welcoming embrace. As the house elves join the throng, the Death Eaters begin to succumb to their numbers and their knives. Some try to flee. As Harry's side gains numbers, Voldemort is shedding those who were never held together by anything stronger than a lust for power and cruelty. Harry winds his way between those still dueling and into the Great Hall, where he spies Voldemort at the center, shooting spells at anyone in reach. All around Harry, his friends are bravely dueling Death Eaters and monsters, working together to try to undo their foe. Lucius and Narcissa, notably, are not fighting. They are running through the masses, screaming for their son. They have given up, even trying to mask their intentions. They have given up fighting for Voldemort, who has lost even the Malfoys, because he could not see the worth of a parent's love. Voldemort can't bother with that betrayal at this moment, though, because he's busy dueling McGonagall 
Slughorn and Kingsley at the same time. Quote, there was cold hatred in his face as they wove and ducked around him, unable to finish him. Bellatrix is also engaged in a three-on-one and not in the way that we assume she liked to be with Voldemort and the guinea and the, the cuck or Adolphus. I don't think I don't think the cuck is even involved. The cuck, I is, mean, cuck I, is is looking through a, like a keyhole outside of the hallway. <laughs> Little finger brothel style. Yeah, the cuck Rodolphus is out there holding Voldemort's robe. <laughs> oh God. Bellatrix is dueling Hermione, Ginny, and Luna. And as Harry looks, one of Bellatrix's killing curses misses Ginny by a literal inch. He turns to go to help his love, but before he can, a charging force knocks him aside. It is the MILF. Molly Wobbles. And she is ready to make a literary history with the flex to end all flexes. Say it with me. Not my daughter, you bitch! You bitch! All series long, Molly Weasley has been the embodiment of love. And one of Harry's darkest and most desperate moments in the hospital wing after Cedric's death and Voldemort's rise, she provided Harry with a stronger salve than anything that Madame Pomfrey could put into a goblet. Yeah. Love. Quote, Mrs. Weasley set the potion down on the bedside cabinet, bent down, and put her arms around Harry. He had no memory of ever being hugged like this, as though by a mother. You might say that she's a cauldron of hot strong. <laughs> Floor wouldn't want you to say that, though. Not a fan of Celestina. From the moment that we met her, Molly Weasley has been one of this story's true heroes because she's fought with the most powerful weapon of all, her heart. She welcomed Harry into her home. She fought to keep her family safe. She and her family together fought to keep the world safe, knowing that doing so would put them in peril. Her bogger took the form of her dead husband and dead children and dead loved ones, and she fought on anyway, finding her courage and her fear and her strength and her adoration. She lost her brothers in the first war. She's already lost a son in this battle. She will not lose. Ginevra, too. As Molly runs toward her mark, Bellatrix laughs, showing that crippling hubris is one of the many things that unites her and Voldemort. She does not take Molly seriously as a threat because she does not view the thing that Molly is fighting for as valid. She does not recognize Molly's skill, nor acknowledge that other things are more important than wand work. Out of my way, Molly shouts to the girls, quote, and with a swipe of her wand, she began to duel. Harry watched with terror and elation as Molly Weasley's wand slashed and twirled, and Bellatrix Lestrange's smile faltered and became a snarl. Others run forward to try to help, and Molly calls them off. Get back. Get back. She is mine. <laughs> Hundreds are gathered around the wall watching the two duels, Bellatrix and Voldemort, on display. Quote, both women were fighting to kill. <laughs> it's incredible. Bellatrix taunts Molly, asking what will happen to her children. Quote, when mummy's gone the same way as Freddy. Recall again that handing me weapons line we referenced earlier. Bellatrix, in diminishing Molly's love, is actually weaponizing it, calling forth its strength, mindlessly summoning her own undoing. Quote, you will never touch our children again, screamed Mrs. Weasley. Bellatrix laughed, the same exhilarated laugh her cousin Sirius had given as he toppled backward through the veil. And there is something so poetic about this mirror image and about Molly, whom Sirius butted heads with most of all, despite sincere affection existing between them vanquishing his killer, quote, and suddenly Harry knew what was going to happen before it did. 
Molly's car soared beneath Bellatrix's outstretched arm and hit her squarely in the chest, directly over her heart. Bellatrix's gloating smile froze. Her eyes seemed to bulge. For the tiniest space of time, she knew what had happened. And then she toppled, and the watching crowd roared, and Voldemort screamed. No Phoenix song! Zero! For Bellatrix Strange! Vile murderer! Snake milker Oof. and fool. She's milking that thing. Man, what a what a moment for Molly Weasley. Yes, incredible. <laughs> Harry feels and sees McGee, Kingsley, and Slug blasted into the air as, quote, Voldemort's fury at the fall of his last best lieutenant exploded with the force of a bomb. And his baby mama, snake milker, snake holder. He's exploded with the force snake of a cave. bomb inside <laughs> <He> really- of Bellatrix. <laughs> snake now. As Voldemort turns his wand upon Molly, the same force that drove Molly forward to save Ginny drives Harry now to act. He cannot abide this death, this hurt. Protego! He roared, and the shield charm expanded in the middle of the hall, and Voldemort stared around for the source as Harry pulled off the invisibility cloak at last. Once, Phineas Nigellus said, you know, minister, I disagree with Dumbledore on many counts, but you cannot deny He's got style. Well, so does our guy, Harry Potter. Oh, yeah? (laughs) The reveal elicits shouts and cries of jubilation and shock. Harry, he's alive! But just as quickly, the crowd falls silent in terror as Harry and Voldemort circle each other almost animalistically. After Harry lost Sirius and found out about the prophecy, he sat alone on the edge of the lake thinking about his burden. Quote, an invisible barrier separated him from the rest of the world, he thought at the time. In this moment... This is both true and false, an uncompromising reality and a warped fallacy. As Dumbledore told Harry in King's Cross, quote, you and Lord Voldemort have journeyed together into realms of magic hitherto unknown and untested. They are linked by choice, by magic, by blood. They are, in this way, apart, separate. Voldemort would never, ever stop hurting Harry. And as Dumbledore and Harry discussed in Prince, Harry would never rest either until he finished Voldemort. Not because of words housed away in a dusty glass sphere, but because of his desire to avenge those Voldemort had harmed and to stop him from harming anymore. And so in that separation and isolation, Harry is not only connected to the others in his life, but drawing his strength and motivation from them. He and Voldemort could be the only two people in the world right now, such as the force of their respective determination to end each other. But every person around Harry in the Great Hall is like a plug, charging him up, sending him surges of motivating love. Harry says that he doesn't want anyone to help him. He's worried even now, inching toward the fire at the heart of Mount Doom, about his friend's safety. Quote, it's got to be like this, he says. It's got to be me. Of course, it is both him and not only him. It is Harry, but Harry is not alone. Harry is Harry because he's fueled by the bonds that he shares with so many. Voldemort taunts him, playing on his fear, asking who he plans to use as a shield next. And Harry, who has walked willingly to his own death and returned with a guiding mission, is more assured than ever before. It's just you and me, he says. And then he quotes the prophecy at Voldemort, who started this all when he so recklessly acted on part of its words, ruled by fear instead of patience, greed instead of wisdom. Neither can live while the other survives, Harry says, and one of us is about to leave for good. Even now, with so many of his soldiers dead or gone and his horcruxes destroyed and the boy he thought 
He'd bested at last return to life before his eyes. Voldemort believes that he will win. One of us, he mocks. You think it will be you, do you? The boy who survived by accident and because Dumbledore was pulling the strings? Now once, many times, these words would have activated a seed of doubt inside of Harry, watering it Mm -hmm. until it grew and blotted out the sun. But Harry is enlightened in a way that Voldemort can never be. Quote, accident was it when my mother died to save me? Asked Harry. They were still moving sideways, both of them, in that perfect circle, maintaining the same distance from each other. And for Harry, no face existed but Voldemort's. Accident, when I decided to fight in that graveyard. Accident, that I didn't defend myself tonight and still survived and returned to fight again. A perfect circle, just like this story. Like Voldemort's mistakes, no one in the Great Hall speaks or seemingly even breathes. They are transfixed by what they're seeing, by what Harry is saying. And Voldemort shrieks the charge at him again. Accidents, cowardice. But we can sense a subtle shift. He's no longer seemingly just trying to convince the crowd. He's trying to convince himself. Recall Voldemort's feeble attempt at contrition from the book's opening at Malfoy Manor. Incapable of sincere introspection. He claimed carelessness and mistakes. But even then, he used those defenses not to show real regret or to allow for real reflection but to diminish Harry's achievements. I know better now, he said at the time. I understand those things that I did not understand before. But he understands nothing. He doesn't see that he's made the same mistake all over again. Fear not. Harry's here to explain everything to his very good friend, Tom. (laughs) Don't you get it? He says, I was ready to die to stop you from hurting these people. But you did not. I meant to, and that's what did it. I've done what my mother did. They're protected from you. And now the oddities that have transpired across this chapter click into place. The silencing charms, the body binds, Voldemort's spells have not held because Harry's protection prevents it. The lethal curses are missing their marks, not because of liquid luck, but because of love. You can't torture them, Harry says. You can't touch them. You don't learn from your mistakes, Riddle, do you? This is a remarkable moment, unsurpassed in its Uh harmony and symmetry. Since the opening pages, Lily's sacrifice has been the beating heart of this story. When Harry was just 11 years old, he sat with Dumbledore in the hospital wing, recovering from his confrontation with Quirrell, Voldemort, and mortality. And he heard these words, your mother died to save you. If there's one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign. To have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. It is in your very skin. Voldemort never understood the power of this act, of this love, of the kind of selflessness that allows one person to sacrifice the only thing Voldemort values, life, for the only thing that really makes life worth living, love. But the great tragedy is not only that he failed to understand this, it's that he thought he did. He boasted in the graveyard of overcoming something that he viewed sincerely as a mere oversight. His mother left upon him the traces of a sacrifice. This is old magic. I should have remembered it. I was foolish to overlook it, but no matter. I can touch him now. He mistook in that moment the error that would allow Harry to survive his self-sacrifice for victory, tethering Harry to life by taking Lily's sacrifice into his own body. As Dumbledore said to Harry in King's Cross, quote, If he could only have understood the precise and terrible power of that sacrifice, he would not, perhaps— have dared to touch your blood. But then, if he had been able to understand it, he could not be Lord Voldemort and might never have murdered at all. We see that again here. 
Harry gave up his life to protect others. He did for everyone in this castle what Lily did for him. He shielded them not with spellwork or cloaks or transfigured statues, but with the force of his affection. You dare? Yes, I dare, said Harry. I know things you don't know, Tom Riddle. I know lots of important things that you don't want to hear some before you make another big mistake. Man, incredible. Harry, who knows Voldemort far better than Voldemort ever knew him, understands that he has his Mark's attention. That Voldemort, despite his belittling disposition, wants to hear what Harry has to say, wants to make sure. Is it love again? Voldemort jeers. Dumbledore's favorite solution, love, which he claimed conquered death, though love did not stop him falling from the tower and breaking like an old waxwork. Love, which did not prevent me stamping out your mudblood mother like a cockroach potter, and nobody seems to love you enough to run forward this time and take my curse. So what will stop you dying now when I strike? Oh my God, that's amazing. Just one thing, said Harry, and still they circled each other, wrapped in each other, held apart by nothing but the last secret. But the last secret, of course, also stems from love and understanding, acceptance and hope, courage and choice, all the things, in other words, that make this story great and that Voldemort overlooks. It is unspeakably galling to hear him deride Dumbledore's teachings, given all that we've come to learn about Dumbledore's life and how hard-won his beliefs were. When Dumbledore said in the ministry, we both know that there are other ways of destroying a man, Tom, he spoke, we know now, from personal experience, having lived a fate worse than death himself when he watched his loved ones die around him. As we saw time and again over the course of the story, though, Dumbledore's desire was not to destroy. It was to heal. In Lord Voldemort's request, we witnessed through memory the following exchange. Then we have nothing more to say to each other, Voldemort said. Dumbledore replied, no, nothing. The time is long gone when I could frighten you with a burning wardrobe and force you to make repayment for your crimes. But I wish I could, Tom. I wish I could. Even with Voldemort, the goodness inside of Dumbledore, the redemption that he himself attained, made him want to guide toward a reprieve. But to Voldemort, that kind of clarity is as obscured as the locket in the center of the lake in the cave, lost amid the pressing darkness. Quote, if it is not love that will save you this time, said Voldemort, you must believe that you have magic that I do not, or else a weapon more powerful than mine. <laughs> I believe both, said Harry, and he saw a shock flit across the snake-like face. Real chills there when Harry says, I believe both. Voldemort's shock quickly morphs back into derision. You think you know more magic than I do, than I, Lord Voldemort, who has performed magic that Dumbledore himself never dreamed of? Always, Dumbledore's shadow hangs over Voldemort, a ghost in the air and in his mind. And again, Harry's knowledge is his guide. He has learned so much, and a lot of it has been painful. But even in that pain and doubt, he found something to hold on to, some way to better understand something about another person or himself. Oh, he dreamed of it, Harry says, thinking of all that he's learned about Dumbledore and the Hallows and Dumbledore and Grindelwald and Dumbledore and power. But he knew more than you. Knew enough not to do what you've done. And Dumbledore knew it because he was able to love. Because the pain of losing Ariana became the shame that shaped the rest of his life. Voldemort could never feel such transformative regret 
because he has never loved someone in the way that Dumbledore loved the family that he failed. You mean he was weak, screamed Voldemort. Too weak to dare, too weak to take what might have been his, what will be mine. This part really gets me. And after the uncertainty that ate away at Harry over the course of this year, after the doubt rooted its way into his mind like a drill bit coated in toxin, he defends and honors Dumbledore as though it were as natural to him as breathing because he loves him and through that love was able to find forgiveness. No, Harry tells Voldemort. (sighs) He was cleverer than you, a better wizard, a better man. I brought about the death of Albus Dumbledore. You thought you did, said Harry, but you were wrong. (laughs) Oh my God. So good. At these words, the crowd wrapped and silent to this point stirs. Could Dumbledore be alive? Like Ron, when he thought Dumbledore might have sent the dough, anyone fighting for good would want to believe that. Voldemort hisses that Dumbledore is dead, that his body rots a stone throws away in the tomb that Voldemort defiled when he retrieved the Elder Wand. Voldemort thinks that these words will wound Harry because he still believes that death is the worst possible outcome. Harry, like the third Peveril brother, has already greeted it as a friend. As Harry worked to process the words on his parents' tombstone in Godric's Hollow, Hermione said, quote, it means, you know, living beyond death, leaving, living after death. Dumbledore lives beyond death, in part through his love and his lessons, through the impact of his teachings. Harry replies, with astonishing poise of a man who's walked into death's waiting arms and then walked back, yes, Dumbledore's dead, but you didn't have him killed. He chose his own manner of dying, chose it months before he died, arranged the whole thing with the man you thought was your servant. Voldemort's reply conveys in a sentence all he fails to understand. What childish dream is this? It's not a dream. It's as real as Snape's love for Lily. But so what if it were? Remember, quote, of course it's happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean it's not real? Voldemort's eyes bore into Harry as he waits for more, dismissing him with his words and his core inflexibility, but latching on to the possibility that there really could be something he missed. Severus Snape wasn't yours, Harry says. Snape was Dumbledore's, Dumbledore's from the moment you started hunting down my mother and you never realized because of the thing you can't understand. You never saw Snape cast a Patronus, did you, Riddle? It's hard even now to process this moment. Harry Potter talking in front of the watching legions to Lord Voldemort about Severus Snape loving his mother, Lily Potter. Harry Potter pushing through seven years of toxicity and veiled truths, Lily's doe, Lily's love, lighting the way to clarity at last. Snape's Patronus was a doe, Harry continues, the same as my mother's because he loved her for nearly all his life from the time they were children. Love and childhood, two of the things that Voldemort is most ready to cast aside. Harry tells him that he should have realized when Snape asked his then master to save her and Voldemort betraying again his inability not only to value but to even grasp the driving force of humanity, says that Snape desired Lily. Nothing more. There were other women of pure blood and worthier status on Sacred 28 that he also liked. (laughs) And he speaks here, as we've noted before, in the passive voice of the tyrant, always looking for full credit for his achievements, but never to take ownership for the horrors that others might rally against. But when she had gone, he says, had gone, gone where, from whom? Voldemort murdered Lily Potter because of rage and fear and hate and greed. And all these years later, he's still paying for not realizing the true cost of that choice and the failure to understand that the choice had a cost at all. Harry, still circling his mark, continues to explain. He's not doing what Voldemort has done so often, preaching and pontificating just for his own edification, needing others to bow at the altar of his own brilliant achievements. 
He really wants Voldemort to understand because he knows that understanding is the path to choosing to try for redemption. And he tells Voldemort that, of course, Snape made him believe that what he's saying now is true, but that Snape was already filling a role, acting as spy, working for Dumbledore, for Lily, for love. He tells Voldemort that Dumbledore was already dying when Snape issued the killing curse, and Voldemort shrieks that it matters not. He can't see the implications of the subtleties at play here, the nuance that the deepest forms of oaths and bonds and magic bring. He can't see subtleties at all. Snape, remember, once levied that very charge at Harry, saying, You have no subtlety, Potter. You do not understand fine distinctions. It is one of the shortcomings that makes you such a lamentable potion maker. But that was never true. And it became increasingly less so as new teachers, or old teachers bearing different names, unlocked the secrets of the universe for Harry. And the greatest teacher of all was the one inside him. Recall what Dumbledore said to Harry in The Lost Prophecy. Quote, There is a room in the Department of Mysteries that is kept locked at all times. It contains a force that is at once more wonderful and more terrible than death, than human intelligence, than forces of nature. It is also perhaps the most mysterious of the many subjects for study that reside there. It is the power held within that room that you possess in such quantities and which Voldemort has. Not at all. Love. It is that power that allowed Harry to unlock the truth, a truth that Voldemort still cannot and will never see. He tells Harry, cackling madly all the while, that what he's saying is irrelevant, that he crushed Snape and Dumbledore and Lily all the same. Quote, Snape's supposed great love. Oh, but it all makes sense, Potter, and in ways you do not understand. He tells Harry, truly believing that he is revealing new insights that will stun Harry, shake him, maybe break him, that Dumbledore was trying to keep the Elder Wand from him, that if what Harry says is true, Dumbledore must have wanted Snape to master the wand instead. Quote, but I got there ahead of you little boy. He tells Harry he got the wand first. He killed Snape to win its allegiance. And that Dumbledore's grand plan went wrong in the end. Quote, I understood the truth before you caught up, he says, not knowing that he's twirling in his hands the stick of wood that will be his undoing. Not knowing that the very breakthrough he's claiming and boasting of here is another costly miscalculation on the hubris-strewn road to his own demise. Voldemort's crippling pride cannot surprise us anymore. But Harry's next comment shocks Voldemort. He tells him that Dumbledore's last plan did, in fact, go wrong. But as we're about to learn, not in the way that Voldemort thinks. Quote, before you try to kill me, Harry says, I'd advise you to think about what you've done. Think and try for some remorse, Riddle. Harry is using his muggle name, his surname, the name that young Tom could not wait to shed. Harry, like Dumbledore in the Ministry of Magic— it was foolish to come here tonight, Tom, refuses to flatter Voldemort's psychosis, refuses to carry out the conversation in the battle on Voldemort's terms. But Harry has another purpose, too. He's speaking to the boy that Harry, back before he knew the truth of the name in Chamber of Secrets, once felt, quote, was a friend he'd had when he was very small and had half forgotten. He's casting a line for any remaining shred of humanity lying dormant behind that snake-like mask. Nothing that Harry has said to this point has shocked Voldemort as much as this. His pupils contract. His already skull-like skin whitens. Harry does not balk. It's your one last chance, said Harry. It's all you've got left. I've seen what you'll be otherwise. Be a man. Try. Try for some remorse. Here it is, the word we've been focused on so often throughout this story. Long before Harry knew the truth of Snape's double act, he heard this from Dumbledore. You have no idea 
of the remorse Professor Snape felt when he realized how Lord Voldemort had interpreted the prophecy, Harry. I believe it to be the greatest regret of his life and the reason that he returned. Remorse was Snape's path back, just as it was Dumbledore's. And their respective remorse, of course, stemmed from their love. Harry has to give Voldemort one last chance to search within himself for something familiar, to identify and flame even the smallest ember of possibility that could prevent him from the fate that met the sliver of his soul that resided inside of Harry, that wailing, flayed manifestation of evil. When Harry and Ron asked earlier in Deathly Hallows if there was any way to repair a soul that had been ripped apart to make horcruxes— Ripped apart, in other words, by murder and hate and greed, Hermione told them that there was just one excruciatingly painful way, remorse. You've got to really feel what you've done. There's a footnote. Apparently, the pain of it can destroy you. I can't see Voldemort attempting it somehow. Can you? On her website in 2007, JKR explained that this was not a feeble, pointless attempt. Quote, the power of Lily's sacrifice is a positive force that not only continues to tether Harry to life, but gives Voldemort himself one last chance, she said. Voldemort has unwittingly put a few drops of goodness back inside of himself. If he had repented, he could have been healed more deeply than anyone would have supposed. But of course, he refused to feel remorse. The force of Lily's love, in other words, was so strong that it could have healed Voldemort from within. But Voldemort did not want to look for it, did not want to turn to it, didn't care enough to try. In The Prince's Tale, we saw Dumbledore wield the word as both a weapon and a life raft. Is this remorse, Severus? I wish, I wish I were dead. And what use would that be to anyone? If you loved Lily Evans, if you truly loved her, then your way forward is clear. Snape latched onto that word, that chance, and found a second life, devoted to repentance and honoring love. In King's Cross, when Harry and Dumbledore spoke of Grindelwald, we heard the word remorse again. I hope that is true, Dumbledore said of the prospect that his one-time love had felt shame of his prior deeds and allowed that shame to guide him anew as Dumbledore had in the wake of Ariana's death. Voldemort sees only a threat, a taunt, an attempt to weaken him through emotion. You dare, he asks. Yes, I dare, said Harry, and he's ready to explain why. He tells Voldemort that Dumbledore's plan hasn't backfired on Harry at all, as Voldemort seems to think. Quote, it's backfired on you, Riddle. Harry, holding Draco's wand steady in his hand, sees that Voldemort's hand is trembling. Quote, that wand still isn't working properly for you because you murdered the wrong person. Severus Snape was never the true master of the Elder Wand. He never defeated Dumbledore. He killed! Aren't you listening? Snape never beat Dumbledore. Harry says that Dumbledore and Snape planned that death, that Dumbledore intended to die undefeated, the wand's last true master, taking the death stick's lethal power with him to the grave. Voldemort, blinded even in this final moment to his failings, celebrates this news, celebrates in essence his impending doom without realizing that he's doing so. He says that if what Harry says is true, Dumbledore all but handed him the wand, says that by taking it from the tomb against Dumbledore's wishes, he mastered it truly. Its power is mine, he says. Harry, guided by his heart and his mind alike here, channeling all that he's learned from Ollivander and his visions and Dumbledore and his own experience, says... You still don't get it, Riddle, do you? Possessing the wand isn't enough. When Harry spoke with Ollivander at Shell Cottage, the wand maker reminded Harry that wand lore is, quote, a complex and mysterious branch of magic. But when Harry asked why Ollivander spoke of wands as though they had feelings, as though they could think and act, Ollivander parroted back to him an eternal truth, first heard by Harry and readers alike in a shop in Diagon Alley seven years ago. The wand chooses the wizard, he said, and then added, that much has always been clear to those of us who have studied wand lore. Harry taps into that here, taps into his understanding of the deeper workings of magic that Voldemort does not bother to acknowledge. 
The same failure to think and see and appreciate that allowed Voldemort to twice fall victim to the protective magic that stemmed from a sacrifice. Quote, holding it, using it, doesn't make it really yours, Harry said. Didn't you listen to Ollivander? The wand chooses the wizard. The Elder Wand recognized a new master before Dumbledore died, someone who never even laid a hand on it. The new master removed the wand from Dumbledore against his will, never realizing exactly what he had done, or that the world's most dangerous wand had given him its allegiance. Voldemort understands that a wand's allegiance must be won, of course, but he thinks that the way to winning it is through force, through hate, through a desire to be supreme. Harry knows the truth. It's the ability to understand the power of love and the subtleties that govern the nature of the universe. The capacity to stop and consider why people make the choices that they do and what the ramifications of those choices really are. Harry can feel Voldemort's fury rising as he says, the true master of the Elder Wand was Draco Malfoy. Of all the manifestations of Voldemort's hubris, this is among the most poetically satisfying. Draco won the Elder Wand while acting on Voldemort's orders to kill Dumbledore, orders that Voldemort never believed Draco would be able to accomplish. He sent the then 16-year-old boy on a suicide mission in order to punish Lucius for his failings, turning that family's love into leverage he could twist like a snake. What's more, Draco was able to master the wand because he disarmed Dumbledore while Dumbledore was acting to protect Harry by freezing him, acting, in other words, by prioritizing his love for Harry and desire to keep him safe over any instinct for self-preservation. And Voldemort's failure to understand Snape's true role in all stemmed yet again from his inability to and disinterest in seeing the role that love played, in understanding what side Snape was really on and why that would carry such a weight. Time and again, love beat him, and yet he stands here now dancing around Harry, wand pointing at his face and says, truly meaning it, but what does it matter? This isn't merely ignorance. This is an absence of humanity so debilitating, so astonishing, it caves the whole world in. He tells Harry that even if he's right, it makes no difference to the two of them. You no longer have the phoenix wand. We do on skill alone. He boasts that he'll beat Harry, killing him for good, and then he'll deal with Draco Malfoy. But you're too late, Harry says, unfazed, knowing that the moment of truth is drawing near, but knowing, too, that he has already won. You've missed your chance. I got there first. I overpowered Draco weeks ago. I took this wand from him. It's our choices, as Dumbledore told Harry long ago, and Harry's choice to take that wand from Draco after the Snatcher's choice to bring their bounty to Malfoy Manor and Bellatrix's choice to torture her prey and every other choice along the way determine the fate of the world. Harry can feel every eye in the hall on the Hawthorne wand in his hand as he flicks it. Quote, So it all comes down to this, doesn't it? Whispered Harry. Does the wand in your hand know its last master was disarmed? Because if it does, I am the true master of the Elder Wand. Do you remember the shiver that ran up your spine when you read that for the first time? Can you still feel your heart beating as every piece clicked into place? As you simultaneously realized the truth of Harry's words and also reminded yourself that it never comes down to any one thing, really. That, as one of this story's great lessons taught us, every choice we made along the way, helped us get here. In the Chamber of Secrets, Harry's good friend Tom said of Lily, she bought you 12 years of borrowed time, but Lord Voldemort got you in the end, as you knew he must. But one of this story's central propositions is that there is no borrowed time. There is no must. Our lives are what we make them, and we can choose better. We can live better when we let love guide us. In the end, Dumbledore told Harry in Order of the Phoenix, it mattered not that you could not close your mind. It was your heart that saved you. And in saving Harry, it saved the world. 
As Harry issues those fateful words, the sun crests across the windows and a red-gold glow blankets the enchanted sky in the Great Hall. Light, literally beating away the dark. Love blasting away the hate. The glow blankets both of them, turning Voldemort's corrupted, once-handsome face into an unrecognizable blur. Harry hears the telltale shriek, and he raises Draco's wand. As Voldemort shouts, Avada Kedavra, Harry turns to his one true love. Expelliarmus! The spells, Voldemort's murderous hate, and Harry's one true protective love meet, and golden flames erupt at the collision point. But this time, there are no echoes of the dead emerging, nor shrieks of phoenix song as there were in the graveyard. The twin cores are gone, just as Voldemort said, but something eternal stands in their place. Love and wand lore, magic at its deepest. Harry sees the Elder One fly high into the air, quote, spinning through the air toward the master it would not kill, who had come to take full possession of it at last. And Harry, with the unerring skill of the Seeker, caught the wand in his free hand as Voldemort fell backward, arms splayed, the slit pupils of the scarlet eyes rolling upward. Tom Riddle hit the floor with a mundane finality, his body feeble and shrunken, the white hands empty, the snake-like face vacant and unknowing. Voldemort was dead, killed by his own rebounding curse, and Harry stood with two wands in his hand, staring down at his enemies. Shell, no Phoenix song! Zero! For Tom Marvolo Riddle! Killed not by an enemy, but by his own hubris. Killed by his inability to love. Killed by his arrogance and his ignorance succumbing at last to the thing he corrupted his soul and his humanity in the very laws of nature to avoid. To as Dumbledore once put it in an effort to explain Voldemort's greatest failings, quote, the shameful human weakness of death. After a second of silence that could span an eternity, the hall erupts in cheers as magnificent and forceful as the freshly risen sun. Voldemort pushed, quote, beyond the realms of what we might call usual evil, as Dumbledore once said. And yet he wound up as mortal and shrunken as anyone, dead in the here and now, mutilated and lost beyond the hope of repair. There is no help possible, Dumbledore told Harry of the shard of withering soul that wailed on the ground of King's Cross in limbo. As we know, as Tom Riddle's body shrinks into the sea of bodies celebrating his demise, that such a fate awaited the rest of him too. Harry stands victorious. Quote, and the first to reach him were Ron and Hermione, and it was their arms that were wrapped around him. Everyone else joins in, Ginny, Neville, Luna, the Weasleys, Hagrid, Kingsley, McGonagall, the lot of them. Quote, all of them determined to touch the boy who lived, the reason it was over at last. Harry makes the round, hearing that those under the imperious curse had risen too, that the Death Eaters were fleeing or fallen into custody, and that the innocent in Azkaban were breaking free, that Kingsley had been named Interim Minister of Magic. Yes. Everyone wants a piece of Harry, wants to share some news. Quote, they wanted him there with them, their leader and symbol, their savior and their guide. They moved Voldemort's body away from the bodies of their fallen loved ones, Fred, Tonks, Lupin, Colin, and the 50 others who had fallen. The victorious sit in the Great Hall, a jumble at the four tables, not divided in this moment by house, united only by victory and goodness and love. Students and teachers, ghosts and centaurs, all together. At last, Luna, sitting next to Harry and always possessing a keen, innate sense of what someone needs, whispers to him. I'd want some peace and quiet if it were me, she tells him. She tells Harry to put on his cloak and go. She'll distract everyone, buy him time. Ooh, look, a blibbering humdinger, she says. And Harry tosses on his cloak and leaves. He sees Ginny, but, quote, there would be time to talk later, hours and days and maybe years. He sees Neville, the sword by his side, admirers all around him. He sees Draco, Lucius, and Narcissa huddled together, but separate from the rest. At last, he spots, quote, 
the two whose company he craved the most, Ron and Hermione. It's me, he whispers to them from beneath the cloak. Will you come with me? And they do, and they walk together through the destruction. They walk through Peeves's parody song. Really gives a feeling for the scope and tragedy of the thing, doesn't it? Ron says. <laughs> they move through doors and continue on. Quote, happiness will come, Harry thought. But here, he feels the weight of his grief and sheer exhaustion, even mingled with the relief. He wants to sleep. Quote, but first he owed an explanation to Ron and Hermione, who had stuck with him for so long and who deserved the truth. He tells them about Snape's memories and his walk to the forest and all that came after. And at last, they reached the gargoyle marking the entrance to Dumbledore's old office. None of them had announced their intention to go there, but their feet and their hearts guided them there all the same. They go up and enter, and a deafening applause greets them. It's the portraits on the wall. Let it be noted, Phineas shouts, that Slytherin House played its part. <laughs> Let our contribution not be forgotten. It, will, it won't be. Believe me. <laughs> it does not matter what Phineas or anyone else has to say right now, though. It does not matter how many people are shouting and cheering it from the frames. Quote. Excuse <sighs> me. Harry had eyes only for the man who stood in the largest portrait directly behind the headmaster's chair. Tears were sliding down from behind the half-moon spectacles into the long silver beard. And the pride and gratitude emanating from him filled Harry with the same balm as Phoenix Song. It's beautiful. Harry, alive with love and light, raises his hand to ask for silence. He needs to ask Dumbledore one more thing. Choosing his words with great care, knowing the weight of the secret that so few still carry, he says, quote, the thing that was hidden in the snitch. I dropped it in the forest. I don't know exactly where, but I'm not going to go looking for it again. Do you agree? My dear boy, I do, said Dumbledore. A wise and courageous decision, but no less than I would have expected of you. Harry, the Resurrection Stone's true master, who used the stone not for selfish gain, but for selfless sacrifice, has the strength not to go looking for it again, not to use it again. He tells Dumbledore that no one else knows where it fell, and as they nod together, they are agreeing to let it rest forever in the earth at peace, just like the souls that no one will now be able to use the stone to call forth. Harry says, however, that he plans to keep, quote, Ignotus's present. The invisibility cloak, of course, is birthright. Quote, Harriet is yours forever, Dumbledore says, until you pass it on. And we can hear almost a whisper like Lily's love that is forever in our skins. The words that first came to Harry with the cloak from Dumbledore. Use it well. Next, Harry raises the Elder Wand, quote, and Ron and Hermione looked at it with a reverence that, even in his befuddled and sleep-deprived state, Harry did not like to see. The Wand of Destiny in his hands, the wand of legend recognizing him as master. Quote, I don't want it, he says. <laughs> and Ron, to borrow an old phrase, ejaculates quite loudly, asking Harry if he's mad. And Harry says that he was happier with his own wand, happier with the wand that chose him, that grew with him, that learned and loved and lost with him. And he pulls the severed halves from the mokeskin pouch. And despite Hermione telling him that nothing could heal it, he taps the Elder Wand against it and mutters, Reparo. And the Holly and Phoenix Feather Wand reseals itself. Red sparks issue from it. Harry picks it up and feels that familiar warmth in his fingers, quote, as though wand and hand were rejoicing at their union. How many people would ever have the wisdom or the courage or the strength to do what Harry just did? 
to leave the resurrection stone in the dust, to forsake the Elder Wand in favor of the one he bought in a shop as a boy. Time and again, he proves his worthiness as a hero, not by gaining power, but by admirably rejecting its pull. Dumbledore looks at him, just like us, with, quote, enormous affection and admiration. As Harry tells him that he's putting the Elder Wand back where it came from and confirming that if he, Harry, dies of natural causes, the wand's power will break. It's last master, undefeated, in life and death. Dumbledore nods, and he and Harry smile at each other, awash in the warm glow of shared respect and understanding. Ron asks Harry one more time if he's sure, but Hermione says that she thinks it's the right choice. Harry is sharing this moment, this decision, with the people that he loves. Quote, that wand's more trouble than it's worth, he says. And quite honestly, I've had enough trouble for a lifetime. Epilogue, 19 years later. Even now, there's something deeply comforting about the words 19 years later. J.K. could easily have ended our story with Harry saying, I've had enough trouble for a lifetime, leaving us to wonder as if after old friends with whom we've lost touch. Did they find peace and happiness that they deeply deserve that we as readers longed for them to have, even as the events of the second Wizarding War enthralled and thrilled us? What are they doing now? One of Rowling's unique talents is her ability to keep pace with her readers. Sorcerer's Stone was published in June 1997, Deathly Hallows in July 2007. When we meet Harry as a boy at Privet Drive, he is 10, about to turn 11. At the end of the Battle of Hogwarts, he is 17. That is as close to a one-to-one fictional-to-real-time ratio as one could hope to find in literature. Harry and Ron and Hermione are characters that people in a very real sense grew up and became friends with. Readers found themselves in the people they wanted to become in these characters. The epilogue, then, is a special kind of gift, a point of brilliant starlight to navigate toward. A glimpse into Harry and Ron and Hermione's futures and, through storytelling, strange and beautiful magic, our own. Rowling said of her ending for Harry in a 2007 Time Magazine interview, it's a bittersweet ending, but that's perfect because that is what happens to our heroes. We're human. I kept arguing that love is the most important force. Love is the most important force. So I wanted to show him loving. Sometimes it's dramatic. It means you lay down your life. But sometimes it means making sure someone's trunk is packed and hoping they'll be okay at school. The first words that greet us in the epilogue are, autumn seemed to arrive suddenly that year. We've spoken so many times of Rowling's mastery of narrative distance. This simple sentence, which begins the epilogue, is a small miracle of craftsmanship, and it deserves attention as such. Why and to whom would Autumn seem to have arrived suddenly? Once upon a time, Harry endured the summers like a swimmer holding his breath, his heart and mind yearning to return to Hogwarts, to breathe in his friends in magic and possibility. Autumn then could not come quick enough. With this seven-word sentence, J.K. not only sets the tone, but provides us with a sparkling insight into how much our friends, now with children of their own, have grown and changed. (sighs) Quote, The morning of the 1st of September was crisp and golden as an apple. And a curious little family is making its way into King's Cross Station. A mother and a father are pushing carts full of luggage topped by two owls in their cages. And a young girl crying, trailing her brothers, clutching her father's arm. Quote, it won't be long and you'll be going too, Harry told her. Two years, sniffed Lily. I want to go now. The names, as we'll see in this epilogue, of Harry and Ginny's children are an expression of their love for them and for those whose names they bear. Lily, after Harry's mother. James, after his father. And Albus Severus, after the two teachers and protectors who guided Harry through darkness into the light. 
While Lily, as her namesake once did, is expressing a longing to attend Hogwarts and begin her magical journey in earnest, her brothers are having a familiar back and forth, one which young wizards taking their first ride on the Scarlet Steam Engine have engaged in for generations. We saw it with Harry and his peers. We saw it with Snape and the Marauders. I won't. <laughs> I won't be in Slytherin, Albus says, at which point Ginny, Harry's love, Harry's wife, tells James to stop berating his younger brother. Through these mere snippets and fragments of conversation, we glean so much about Harry's family and Harry's life. James is older, goading his younger brother, preying on his insecurities. I only said he might be, said James, clearly <laughs> living up to his namesake's penchant for button bushing. We can tell, too, that the old prejudices between houses did not die out with the Wizarding War. They are lamentably as strong as ever. At the barrier, Albus asks his parents if they'll write to him. And there's a longing here that makes what's to come in Cursed Child really quite a twist. Every day, if you want us to, Ginny says. Well, That's not, a- not that much, <laughs> Albus says. <laughs> trying to strike that familiar balance so many young people seek when they want to honor and cling to their feelings, but also want to put up a front. Quote, James says most people only get letters from home about once a month. And Ginny notes that she and Harry wrote to James three times a week last year. Uh, channel my best Kevin Clark voice here. James Sirius Potter. Owned. James, who is already razzing his brother about potentially getting sorted into Slytherin, carries his grandfather's braggadocious swagger. Harry, aware of this, and of the delights and terrors that awaited Hogwarts school, tells Al not to believe everything that James says. He likes a laugh, your brother. It's amazing to see Harry, who liked to laugh himself, in the throes of fatherhood, looking to comfort and guide a young boy, bearing his blood, and, as we'll see in Cursed Child, his burdens, as he sets out on a journey of fabulous discovery, beginning the next formative phase of his life, boarding a train that can take him anywhere entering a castle that houses ghosts and possibilities alike. Albus clearly needs a different kind of love than his brother, needs parents who understand his sensitivities. In the run-up to Hallows, when we all wondered whether Harry would live or die, one of the things that we asked ourselves was, well, what future would await if he did live? What kind of life would, could the Chosen One lead after vanquishing evil and saving the world? Voldemort has been defeated. His Death Eaters largely dead or jailed. Harry's quest now is to be a dad, to love someone else in the way that he always wanted to be loved. The rest of the Potters follow James through to platform nine and three quarters. Albus, anxious and jumpy, peers across the steamy platform and asks, where are they? Who they are is quickly apparent when the Potters dodge Percy and his broomstick regulation talk and approach the last carriage to see four people, another family. Parked all right then? Ron asks Harry. I did. Hermione didn't believe I could pass a muggle driving test, did you? She thought I'd have to confund the examiner. No, I didn't, said Hermione. <laughs> I had complete faith in you. As a matter of fact, I did confund him, Ron whispers <laughs> to Harry as together they lifted Albus's trunken owl onto the train. It is so great yes. to see our friends again after all these years, even though it's been barely a few pages. <laughs> Ron and Hermione married. Harry and Ginny married. They have kids. They built families. Their friendships have stood the test of time. And now they're here seeing off their children, a new generation, boarding the Scarlet Steam Engine and heading toward infinite possibilities. It's become clear that Albus was anxious to locate the Weasleys because he's close to their daughter and his cousin, Rose Weasley. Hugo, Rose's younger brother, is 
too young to attend Hogwarts, but already he and Lily are speculating wildly about which houses they might get sorted into. We've spoken often about the deleterious effects of the sorting process, of the sectarian rivalries engendered by it, and how those fault lines can and have easily lead to schisms within the wizarding community. Even Dumbledore wondered if, quote, we sort too soon. Ron Weasley ain't trying to hear that. If you're not in Gryffindor, we'll disinherit you, he quips, <laughs> earning an emphatic Ron from Hermione. From the book, Lily and Hugo laughed, but Albus and Rose looked solemn. Ron is joking, of course. Uh-huh. But recall Dumbledore's words. Quote, old men are guilty if they forget what it is to be young. And part of being young and encountering a world built by others is a bone-deep craving for acceptance, for a sign of where it is that one belongs in that world. And on the flip side of that, fear that the world or one's family or friends might reject you for simply being who you are. Ron has forgotten those youthful hopes and fears, fears that will shape the next installment in the wider, oh, so wide, Potter canon. As Hermione assures Albus and Rose that Ron is just kidding around. Ron spots a familiar figure across the platform. Dun, dun, dun. Draco Malfoy. Receding hairline and all. Tough, tough look for my guy. Draco and his wife are escorting their son, Scorpius, who, quote, resembled Draco as much as Albus resembled Harry, and who will delight us to no end in Cursed Child to the station for his first trip to Hogwarts. Draco makes eye contact and nods once at his one-time nemesis turned savior and then turns away. There is no affection here. But there is a palpable reminder that shared history does not just stay in the past, nor does prejudice. Make sure you beat him in every test, Rosie, Ron says. Thank God you inherited your mother's brains. Ron, for heaven's sake, said Hermione, half stern, half amused. Don't try to turn them against each other before they've even started school. Ron offers a cursory apology, but then adds, don't get too friendly with him, though, Rosie. (laughs) Granddad Weasley would never forgive you if you married a pureblood. Just then. James returns to the group, barely able to contain himself as he tells them that he saw Teddy, quote, snogging victory. Excuse me, I mean, victoire. Teddy Lupin, Remus and Tonks' son, Harry's godson. Metamorphomagus, proud Hufflepuff and eventual head boy. Clearly, the young man has a bit of the wolf in him already. (laughs) Oh, oh. (laughs) on the prowl, (laughs) Teddy Lupin. (laughs) Victory is Bill and Floor's daughter. Quote, our Teddy, Teddy Lupin, snogging our victory, our cousin. And I asked Teddy what he was doing. You interrupted what them, do you mean, What is he doing? <laughs> <laughs> you are so like Ron. Young Lily expresses here her delight at this news, noting that if Teddy and, let's do our best Richard Madden and bodyguard voice here, Vicky, Vicky, Vic. <laughs> Got married, quote, Teddy would really be part of the family then. And Harry's reply warms the heart. He notes that Teddy's already at their place for dinner like four times a week. And we can tell from that one remark, cheeky though it is, that Harry has honored his duty as godfather, has embraced it fully, providing love and kinship for Remus and Tonks' son. As we so often discuss, the family that you choose is one of the most powerful elements of the best fantasy stories and this one is no exception, in unlocking something about yourself, you can also unlock something about your life. Teddy doesn't need to marry anyone to officially join the family. He's family already. Harry checks his watch, the watch that Molly gave him on his 17th name day. Fabian Pruitt's watch. He's kept it all this time. He tells his children that it's nearly 11, time to board the train. 
Don't forget to give Neville all her love, Ginny told James as she hugged him. Mom, I can't give a professor love, but you know Neville. We're getting so much information without it ever feeling heavy-handed or forced. It's as natural as tea and rock cake with our friends at Hagrid's. James shakes his head at his parents, kicks his younger brother, and issues one more dickhead warning. See you later, Al. Watch out for the Thestrals. I thought they were invisible. You said they were invisible. Harry tells his youngest son that Thestrals are nothing to fear. They're gentle, misunderstood, like Harry was. Like Albus, maybe. Ginny kisses Al and bids him farewell, and Harry hugs his son. From the book, the whisper was for his father alone. What if I'm in Slytherin, the boy says to him. From the book, the whisper was for his father alone, and Harry knew that only the moment of departure could have forced Albus to reveal how great and sincere that fear was. He crouched down and looked right into his son's eyes, Lily's eyes. Alone of Harry's three children, Albus had inherited Lily's eyes. <sighs> Quote, Albus Severus, Harry said quietly so that nobody but Ginny could hear, and she was tactful enough to pretend to be waving to Rose, who was now on the train. You were named for two headmasters of Hogwarts. One of them was a Slytherin, and he was probably the bravest man I ever knew. These words stand out among the series' signature achievements. Harry, who so often carried this same fear, these same crippling doubts about the nature of his own identity, letting his love and his hard-earned enlightenment show his son that no label can define who you are, whether it's Slytherin or Gryffindor or Chosen One or Spy or anything else. We are what our choices make us. We are what's in our hearts. But just say, Albus says, and Harry continues, then Slytherin House will have gained an excellent student, won't it? It doesn't matter to us, Al. <laughs> but if it matters to you, you'll be able to choose Gryffindor over Slytherin. The sorting hat takes your choice into account. <laughs> and it's the first time he's told any of his children this. And there's something about the nature of Albus's fear and need that brings it out of him. In this moment, one can only wonder what Harry, who never knew his parents, is feeling as he's being a father, a teacher, and a guide to his son. Quote, he saw the wonder in Albus's face when he said it. As the carriage doors begin to slam, Al jumps aboard and face after face looks back at Harry. Albus asks what they're all staring at. And Ron, showing that his signature wit has followed him into adulthood, says, don't let it worry you, it's me. I'm extremely famous. The children laugh and the train pulls away and Harry keeps his eyes locked onto his youngest son's face as he heads off on his own great adventure. Quote, Harry kept smiling and waving, even though it was like a little bereavement watching his son glide away from him. Harry, who so often wondered what it would be like if his own parents could see him off on the Hogwarts Express, could be there to counsel him through his grief and fear, through all the rhythms of life, both everyday and extreme, has just done this for his own child, his own love. He's full of joy, but also worry. He's full of hope, but also fear. He's full of everything that makes up the fabric of our lives because he made the choice to live and to love and to be. He'll be all right murmured Jimmy as Harry looked at her. He lowered his hand absentmindedly and touched the lightning scar on his forehead. I know he will. The scar had not pained Harry for 19 years. All was well. <sighs> Jason. Yes. Does the mic in your hand know its last master was disarmed? Because if it does, you have to toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the Elder Wand. Before Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, Zach Cram dove deep into the history of the Elder Wand, exploring the Wand's history, its role in the original Seven Potterbrooks, and its potential role in the Beasts franchise. 
What follows here is a condensed and amended version of that exploration that serves as a general elder wand study rather than a primer on how the wand could function in the Beast films. Shouts to Zach Cram, as always. What's in a name? Deathstick, Wand of Destiny, the first of the three Deathly Hallows. That which we call the Elder Wand, by any other name, would be just as bloody. In this case, the Elder in Elder Wand refers not to its age, but rather to the wood from which it was crafted. This is the rarest type of wood used to make a wand, and writing in the voice of Ollivander on Pottermore, Rowling says, quote, It takes a remarkable wizard to keep the Elder Wand for any length of time. Inside the 15-inch Elder Wand is a Thestral tail hair to form the core, which is also quite rare and suggests a close relationship with death. Whether the actual craftsman who transformed a piece of Elder into the world's most powerful magical weapon was actually death personified, as the tale of the Three Brothers describes, or just Antioch Peveril himself, as Dumbledore theorizes, these characteristics at least hold true. After slaying his enemy forthwith upon receiving the wand, Antioch died that very night when, Beetle's story says, quote, another wizard crept upon the oldest brother as he lay, wine sodden upon his bed. The thief took the wand and for good measure slit the oldest brother's throat. Between that initial theft and the early 20th century, when the Fantastic Beast franchise takes place, scores of other wizards temporarily mastered and then violently lost possession of the wand. Emmerich the Evil, Egbert the Egregious, Barnabas Deverell, Loxius, and so on. Not every such wizard is known, but as Ollivander tells Harry in the middle of Hallows, quote, it is perfectly possible to trace the wand's course through history. There are gaps, of course, and long ones, where it vanishes from view, temporarily lost or hidden, but always it resurfaces. Notably, Rowling reveals in the Beetle Companion book that no witch is known to have ever possessed the wand, and she comments drolly in Dumbledore's voice, make of that what you will. But the wizards who did possess the wand, even if they died for it, gained some measure of power in the meantime. Like all wands which Rowling has described as quasi-sentient, the Elder Wand isn't just a tool for wizards to wield, but a partner with which to build a trusty magical relationship. Ollivander tells Harry that wand working is, quote, a mutual quest for experience. The wand learning from the wizard, the wizard learning from the wand. And in Beetle, Rowling writes, again in Dumbledore's voice, those who are knowledgeable about wand lore will agree that wands do indeed absorb the expertise of those who use them, though this is an unpredictable and imperfect business. In the case of the Elder Wand, this relationship is magnified. Rowling wrote in a tweet last year that the death stick is, quote, more sentient than any other. So it follows in Beetle when she says a wand that has passed through the hands of so many dark wizards would, quote, accumulate wisdom, strength, and power far beyond the ordinary and become quote, almost an instructor to subsequent masters. One such wizard named Godilot authored a handbook about dark magic called Magic Most Evil and attributed much of his tutelage to his most wicked and subtle friend by which he meant the wand, which itself guided Godilot through the ways of dark magic. The Elder Wand's near sentience extends to its manner of passing as well. Even more than most wands, the Death Stick enjoys a fickle allegiance and over the centuries has proved its willingness to change masters after a show of superior magical ability. Rowling said in a 2007 Pottercast interview, The Elder Wand knows no loyalty except to strength, so it's completely unsentimental. It will only go where the power is. She then added an important clarifying line about how to gain its possession. You don't need to kill with it. The failure to appreciate this nuance, of course, is what dooms Lord Voldemort, who assumed Snape was the wand's owner because Severus killed Dumbledore, even though Malfoy had already disarmed the headmaster and Harry had since disarmed Malfoy. There's another known owner of the Elder Wand who didn't kill to gain possession either, Albus Dumbledore, who, as far as we know, held the wand for the longest time. 
That makes sense, given the Elder One's desire for, quote, a remarkable wizard. And as Dumbledore explained to Harry in King's Cross, I was permitted to tame and to use it because I took it not for gain, but to save others from it. In this sense, it seems the wand works a lot like the Mirror of Erised when it held the Sorcerer's Stone, involving a fabric of deep and intrinsic magic focused on intention, far too old and rooted, paradoxically, in matters outside pure power for Voldemort to bother to understand their workings. Dumbledore knew this. Harry learns it too. That's what makes them special in a centuries-long line of wizards who didn't know any better. Jason, it's your one last chance. It's all you've got left. I've seen what you'll be otherwise. Be a podcaster. Try for some nuggets. (laughs) So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallows, chapter 36, and the epilogue. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one, the original epilogue had a lot more information in it, but Rowling said in a 2007 Today Show interview that it needed pairing back because the original was, quote, a lot more detailed, but it didn't work very well as a piece of writing. She expanded further in a 2007 interview on her book tour stop in Toronto when she said, quote, most of the tweaking was done to reveal less information rather than more. As originally conceived, the epilogue pretty much crowbarred in every possible piece of information I could give you about their future lives just because that was where I always knew I was heading. So I knew I had a lot of information. And when I first wrote that all down, that was the point I'm saving it for. The big tweak, I suppose, was Lupin's son, because until the fifth book in the series, Order of the Phoenix, I had intended Lupin to stay alive. So then it became a focus of the epilogue, one of the focuses, to make sure that we knew, even if he doesn't physically appear, that he was okay. Number two, friends. As is hopefully abundantly clear, we love Harry James Potter. Our love him. is a gem of a human and a hero to boot. We don't want to cast aspersions. But we would be remiss if we did not at least quickly note that Harry named all three of his kids after his parents, mentors, and guardians, while Ginny apparently did not get to devote a single name to honoring someone on her side. James Sirius Potter, Albus Severus Potter, and Lily Luna Potter. Beautiful gestures all, and certainly Luna in particular meant something to Ginny. Sirius as well, but still, it's a bit like the Gringotts vault hoarding of baby naming. Can we get... Uh, Let's get a fourth one in there so we can try to even it out. Like, what's happening here? Let's get someone named after Fred. I mean, George did that, but I know. Still, Why not? I'm still. Yeah, let's get another Fred. Oh, well, uh, you know, George George got Fred. <laughs> I'm sure that's what Harry said, by the way. <laughs> but George is taking care of that one. Number three. At Platform 9 and 3 quarters, Harry tells Albus, don't forget Hagrid's invited you to tea next Friday. Just as happened with Harry in his first year. Also, Harry says, don't duel with anyone until you've learned how. And that line is a great callback and highly relevant advice given Harry's first year when Draco challenges him to the midnight duel. And Ron has to explain to Harry how duels work and what a second even is. Number four. Quote, along the aisle between the tables he walked and he spotted the three Malfoys huddled together as though unsure whether or not they were supposed to be there. But nobody was paying them any attention. Well, I'll tell you where they were supposed to be. In jail! (laughs) We would be immensely remiss if we did not spend one more moment noting and really stressing that the Malfoys escaped prosecution yet again. Why? How? I love how it's like they were wandering around being like, man, this is awkward. Yeah, it's awkward, guys. (laughs) It's pretty awkward. It's very tough. Wizarding justice, always leaving something to be desired. Number five. Many of the ultimate dual pairings in the Great Hall offer some satisfying closure for a few of our friends. Ron, for one, helps to bring down Fenrir Greyback, who disfigured his brother Bill and maybe 
killed, we're not sure, his first snog partner, Lavender. Hagrid, meanwhile, knocks McNair unconscious years after McNair arrived at Hagrid's hut to execute Buckbeak and after McNair acted as Hagrid's rival in wooing the Giants. And Percy and Arthur worked together to dispose of the thickness who symbolized the sort of careerism and ministry machinations that created a wall between Percy and the rest of the Weasleys in the first place. Number six, Neville's Nagini slaying moment, while remarkable for all the reasons explored above, does at least warrant a footnote in light of the reveal in Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Nagini was once a woman, a maledixus. She became a snake due to a blood curse that turned her forever into a beast. A bittersweet moment in retrospect. Yeesh. Number seven. Finally, as we wind down our discussion of these eternal classics, we wanted to highlight some figures that speak to this series' impact. From what accounting we have available, we know that Sorcerer's Stone is one of the five highest-selling works of fiction ever, and that all of the other books in the series are in the top 20 overall. The book series has sold more than 500 million copies and counting, which makes it the highest-selling series of all time by a wide margin. Hallows sold roughly 15 million copies in just the first 24 hours alone, making it the fastest-selling book ever. Shouts to everyone else who lined up at midnight. And Harry Potter is also the third highest-grossing film franchise of all time at the moment, behind the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Star Wars. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. Mal, to quote the homie peeps, we did it. We bashed them. We pot as the one. And Voldy's gone moldy, so now let's have fun. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup one last time to who else? Of course! As long as Zach is not involved in the play of this. <laughs> Harry Potter. It's Harry Potter. The boy who lived, lived. And he beat Voldemort. Pretty big deal. He ended the Second <laughs> Wizarding War through the power of his courage, his love, and his choices. He helped to build a new world. And then in that world, he built a life and a family. And as our friends in the Night's Watch would say, we shall never see his like again. To Harry Potter, the boy who lived. Yes. All right, friends, we've had enough trouble for a lifetime. So have Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, and Evan Campbell, who helped produce today's episode. We hope that you enjoy discussing these marvelous books as much as we did, that you're as excited as we are for the last few days of this journey, and that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing The Deathly Hallows Part 2 film adaptation. And then after that, stay tuned. We're going to have some Cursed Child talk and an owl post to hear your questions. And of course, we will share our closing thoughts on what makes this story so special to so many of us. Please stay tuned for that. And we will be collecting your submissions from the underscore accounts on Twitter and Instagram where you can feel free to start DMing them or leave them on the pinned post that you can find in the Binge Mode Facebook group. It has been so incredible to see those communities grow and we want you all to know that they're not going anywhere. Until next pod, remember, all was well. My lord? I'm fine. Back away. My lord? I have no need of your assistance. My wubsy? My white snakey? Bellatrix, not here. (laughs) 
my wubby wubby wubby. Bellatrix, stop it! <laughs>